Let me give you a little bit of news about the class. This is the last day of this class because all the other classes change after today. Originally, I had asked the, the, the shepherds and the people, could I just run this a few more weeks to catch a few more books? Then it dawned on me that I would never really be happy doing that. So, next week we start with how did we get our Bibles? And that'll be grown-up class. There'll be a lot of work involved. And then next summer, we're going to come back and look at more of the books of the Apocrypha, plus other books like the Epistle of Barnabas, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, and the like, that were very important to the early church, but never even made it into the Apocrypha. And by that time, you'll know why, and you'll know how all that worked. So next week, we will start our class as, um, as advertised. We weren't, we're not going to extend this one. However, today, we're looking at first and second Esdras. I know it sounds odd, but Esdras. Before we get to that, though, some of what you're about to hear in the first five to ten minutes, you're going to hear later in the How We Got the Bible uh, series. So if you start to have deja vu in the next few weeks, that's why. I want you to put yourself in, your, in the shoes of the, of the Jewish people around 600 years before the birth of Christ. You've been the people of God for a long time, about a thousand years. You've had prophets, priests, kings, judges. You've seen good times during the, the years of David when he, he expanded the borders of the territory. And you've seen prosperous times with Solomon when things became rich. But then things went sideways after just two kings. The kingdom split in two. And when that happened, the dreams of the Jews were in peril. In the north, that king preferred a different set of priests. The Levitical priesthood split in two. The ones in the north returned worship to Shiloh. Now Shiloh was where a lot of worship had taken place, the worship of God through the years. Uh, David worshiped at Shiloh quite a bit. Samuel, the prophet uh, and judge, also worshiped at Shiloh. But Josiah and some of the kings in the south had shut down Shiloh and moved everything to Jerusalem and their capital. Well, now that the ten tribes were in the north, they went back to Shiloh. In the south, the king prefers Jerusalem, so they're not even going to church together anymore. Then came the captivities, three major captivities. First one group, then another is taken away. When I was a boy... I, I got the impression sometimes what happened was here came this tribe in and they took everybody with them, this kingdom or empire. No, probably never more than a third, more likely around 10% were taken into captivity at any one time. The others would scatter or they weren't important enough to take. If you remember like when Daniel was taken, who did they killed a bunch of people, they drove off a bunch of people, but they took the royal family, the um, intelligentsia, the scholars, the priest, again, royalty, that's who they took. And if you take away your leadership, your religion, it's also your national storytellers, your national identity is in danger of being forgotten. And then, finally, the last big captivity was a Babylonian captivity. Interesting, the Babylonian captivity is going to show up later, but hundreds of years after Jesus. 
when in Jerusalem there were two major religious foundations one the Jewish patriarchate and the other the Christian bishops when the Romans through Constantine finally accepted the Christians as the national religion the Palestinian uh, based Jews realized there was no place for them there they went to Babylon and that's where they lived and wrote for a long time but that's ahead of our story in Babylon Nebuchadnezzar dies and his son is killed in the fall of the Babylonian Empire, as, as given to us in Scripture. The Medo-Persian uh, Empire then takes its place and finds among all of its big spoils of Babylon a bunch of people. People, Jewish people. Now, Darius and Cyrus seem to be a bit more sane than Nebuchadnezzar. A lot more sane, perhaps. And a lot more rational. And they didn't feel like they needed all these people here, so they issue a writ of return, saying you're allowed now to go back. Um, you may not be aware of this. In most places in the world today, even most places today, you cannot travel from town to town without official permission. You cannot change your occupation without official permission. You have to have your papers to show. Uh, the, the, you know, this week, I'm, if the Lord allows I'm supposed to speak to a, a large mil, um, law enforcement gathering in the north of Michigan and then teach at Ohio State University for a couple of days and get back so I'll be giving five talks driving 1900 miles that's impossible in most places unless you have worked for years to get visas stamps and permission well they gave him permission you can leave here and go there these letters become very important, by the way, especially in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But when you go back, what are you going to find? What happens when you leave an area and your people are aimless and without leaders? Other people come in. So you're going back, but there may be other people living in your house you may not be able to do what you did before. I mean, what are you going back to? So at this point, it is critical that they get their story together. Friends of ours are across from Scotland just now, and um, they haven't come to worship here because they, their family is very um, tied in to Tusculum and Woodson Chapel, I think it is, and so they're on that side, but... Uh, I visited with him a couple times, had a great time. I've known him since I was 17. And his wife is here visiting her parents because she's American. Um, he's a, a native Scot. And her parents are fighting dementia. And she said, you know, her mom keeps telling the same story over and over again. And I said, listen to it over and over again. I said, the thing about humans is before we die, we have to get our story down. And we have to have somebody hear our story and believe that our story will survive us. So we will tell it again and again and again until we get it down. And I said, if she tells something which didn't happen, don't correct her. Listen, because at that stage, we're allowed to make it up. We have to leave behind a story. Well, they needed to bind the people together with their story and tell those that were now living in their lands, listen, our story tells us we own that land. By the way, does this sound familiar? It ought to, because that same struggle is still going on today, is it not? 
That's the battle. It has been there since Isaac and Ishmael. Who owns that land? Who belongs to that land? Who was there first? Well, how are they going to do this? Well, they got to write it down. But to write it down, they got to get it. Sometimes people think the Bible was dictated by God word for word. But if you read the Bible very carefully, you find that that's just not possible. I mean, the first chapter of Corinthians, for example, when Paul says, I thank God that I didn't baptize anybody there except for this person or that person. Oh, and that person. And if I baptize anyone else, I don't remember it. God, if he was dictating it, wouldn't have said that. And there are, some, there are just so many like that. Humans put the Bible together as, it, as inspired by God. It is scripture. It is holy. But it was put together. In fact, we're going to look at that in great detail. The Bible itself says it used other source materials. Over 20 other books are listed. The book of Jasser, the book of this. And they'll even say, we went to this, we went to that one, we went to this one, and about this, isn't that said over here? And they gathered those. But that's just the start of it. If you look at the other materials quoted, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> which are not books. Yeah, pray for me this week. Ragweed has invaded, <coughs> which comes from Satan. Um, not books, but rather this writ. For example, the writ of return is quoted. Then writs of others are quoted. You, you end up with over 50 different source materials for Scripture. Stories are being worked into single narratives by editors, sometimes a person alone, other times by a school under an editor, getting all the materials and putting them together. That's why sometimes you'll get stories that are said twice in Scripture. It's, they've got two sources. They put them both together. You might say, but if they contradict each other, why didn't they fix it? The Jews didn't think we needed it fixed. Um, we're really hung up on everything has to match. The Jews were telling a story. The point of the story is the point of the story. Don't get lost in the details. For example, the Bible is the sword of the spirit. Well, what part of it is the hilt? Which part's this blade? Which part's that blade? Which part's the point? Which part's the hand? You're losing the point of the story. It's the sword of the spirit. That's enough. Move on. If you don't watch out, you can overanalyze scripture so much that you kill it. It's like doing an autopsy on a living person. It's a bad idea. Think of it this way. Right after Jesus uh, leaves this planet, four different versions of his life pop up. And they tell basically the same story, but they do change some things. When Jesus curses the fig tree, that story's different in a couple of them. In the communion, we get bread and cup, except in Luke, where you get cup, bread, cup. Uh, and, and if you just want a fun day, go look at Peter denying Christ three times and the cock crowing and see if you can figure out that timeline by reading the different ones. They're a little different. Now, does that mean... <gasps> I've had people come to me and say, if I can't trust that, then I can't trust that Jesus is the Christ. Seriously? You, you'd miss the big story because you trip over a detail? That's sad. That's like going to the movies with me. <laughs> Cammie will tell you, don't do that. Because I'll go, wait a minute. She'll go, don't tell me. 
and the, the other, he was wearing a different shirt. Don't tell me. Okay. The cigarette got longer. <laughs> you know, I, and, and in fact, we, we were watching Elf, and I went, wait a minute, and I start backing it up. She goes, no, and I said, no, look, picture's gone, picture's back, picture's gone, picture's back. And I said, now look over, and, and she, so when I go to the movies, I go to a completely different movie. Um, don't read the Bible that way. Get the story and enjoy the story. One of the first and most important writers, you're going to hear a word, redactor. Redactor means you take all of these and you put them together and you edit them into one single narrative. A redactor was a priest named Ezra. Now, when we look at first and second Ezra's, they were not written by him, but they were written about him. And Ezra's is merely the Greek word for Ezra. So that's why they're named this way. It's a reworking of Ezra and Nehemiah, the book you, first Ezra, uh, Ezra's, Ezra and Nehemiah, and some new material, and some material in the Chronicles put together, uh, it especially is to introduce to us some work of Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel, other than being fun to say, uh, does not show up a lot in scripture, but shows up a lot in the Talmud, the Mishnah, the tales of the Jews. He is really important to them. So this will introduce one of their great heroes. It answers also some questions. How was Cyrus moved to let the Jews go back? We know in Nehemiah that Nehemiah goes to him and asks to go back to build the walls, but the people were already there at the time. So what moved Darius and Cyrus to move, let them go back in the first place? That's not in our Bibles, but it's in First Esdras. It also gives us insight into the establishment of what historians call Second Temple Judaism. Because they built that next Zerubbabel's temple. But when they built it, some cried and some rejoiced. They cried if they remembered the old temple. They rejoiced if they didn't. But even then, the worship was a bit different. Why? First Ezra's. Uh, Ezra's. Uh, all of this was probably compiled somewhere about 150 years before the birth of Jesus. How do we know that? I hear you cry. It gets very, very technical, but uh, the two simplest ones, the language used, they used that form of language around the year 150 before Jesus. And the second, it is never listed in books of the Jews until about 150 BC. And then it shows up. So it was compiled sometime around them. Uh, just very simply, language changes and the word gay used to mean happy, right? Don't we now our gay apparel? You feel a bit awkward singing that now? Um, the word for a housewife in Shakespeare is hussy. Don't even do it, guys. Do not do it. <laughs> Bad idea. The worst thing you could call somebody was mischievous. Language changes. And so when you look, you trace the language changes. All right. We're going to talk about the Septuagint later in our class. Suffice it to now, for now to say, the rabbinical powers that be after the fall of Jerusalem rejected the Septuagint because in there were books that pointed so much to Jesus, that was a problem. And there were some other issues as well. And so they rejected it. But the Septuagint was a version of the Bible that Paul quoted most. It was his favorite. And so divergence goes there. A lot of books then just fell out and never stayed with the Jews or the Christians after then, and that, this is one of those.
All right, first Esdras. We open with a quick history, how the Jews ended up in Babylon. And then Josiah, the reforming king, great guy, finds a book. We're going to talk about that in the How We Got the Bible thing. But he finds a book, and he restores the, um, the worship and shuts down all the high places, makes everybody come back to Jerusalem. This is how we're doing it. But Josiah wasn't perfect. He didn't listen to advice not to go to battle at a certain time. But he did. And he went out against the Egyptians. The prophets told him, don't do it. He did. He thought, because he'd reformed the worship, and that he was God's favorite, and he was killed by an arrow in the, in the battle against um, uh, King Necto there in Egypt. Jews are then taken into captivity in Babylon. Seventy years later, Cyrus a Persian authorizes their return. Once they get back, they find a whole bunch of people that didn't leave, plus other people have moved in, the Samaritans, and none of them are happy to see them come back. They're not happy at all. You know, we're part of your royal family. We've done without you 70 years. We don't need you anymore. Well, we're going to take this land and do this. Nope, it's ours now. It was, it was, it was difficult. But how'd they get back there? Here's the fun bet. You knew there had to be a fun bet. Here's the fun bet. Here's where we get new material. Cut to a scene. It's in the courtroom of Darius. I know it looks like Darius, but they called it Darius. Of course, he's dead now, so call him what you want. There are three courtiers, three top guys, and they are arguing about what is the greatest, most powerful thing in the kingdom, and whoever wins the argument will win great honors and get in even better with Darius. Now, this sounds odd to us. It should not. In the ancient world, the greatest, highest form of entertainment was the argument. And it, now, you need to know what an argument is. Because <laughs> Facebook indicates nobody does. <laughs> to attest something, thank you, is not an argument. You know, Democrats are stupid, Republicans hate poor people. That's not an argument. Those are just protestations. An argument says, here is my premise, and here is the evidence to back up what I believe. And you have, to, you have to delineate that and then hold your evidence against the other evidence and all this other. And that's just too hard for us. So we don't even say, I think anymore. If you listen to talk radio, people don't say, I think. They say, I feel. Oh, stop it. Feelings are acceptable in some controlled circumstances. Think. Think. Well, they didn't have TV and the malls wouldn't open for another 2,000 years. So they would sit and do these arguments, and it was fun. They didn't get mad as a rule. It was fun, and you used humor and wet, and we're going to read some of it. One of the courtiers here is Zerubbabel. He's a descendant of King David, and one of those taken when Daniel was taken. All right, here's the three courtiers. Let each of us state what one thing is strongest, and to him whose statement seems wisest, Darius the king will give rich gifts and great honors of victory. And it goes on. And he'll sit next to Darius, which it was evidently a really big deal. Uh, they wrote their own statement. They sealed them, put them under the pillow of Darius the king, so he would judge. When the king wakes, awakes, they'll give him the writings. And again, they'll get all of this great stuff. So the first one wrote, wine is the strongest. The second one wrote, the king is strongest. 
Always have one. Third, women are the strongest, but truth is victor over all things. Wow. He summoned all the nobles in. Everybody, this, this is like the Super Bowl. Then said, now explain what you've written. Gentlemen, the first one gets up. How is wine the strongest? It leads astray the minds of all who drink it. It makes equal the mind of the king and the orphan, of the slave, of the free, the poor, and the rich. It turns every thought to feasting and mirth, forgets all sorrow and debt. It makes all hearts feel rich, forgets kings and satraps. And see, you've forgotten satraps already, haven't you? When's the last time you had a good thought of a satrap? See? See? Anyway, uh, even if you don't drink wine, evidently it's contagious. And makes everyone talk in millions. That's just another way of saying blah, 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 blah. All right? It's hard to write blah, 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 in Hebrew. When people drink, they forget to be friendly with friends and brothers. Before long, they draw their swords. When they recover from wine, they don't remember what they've done. So, gentlemen, is not wine the strongest since it forces men to do these things? Second one, the strength of the king. A lot of this is just boring. Strength of the king one. If he tells them to go to war on another, they do it. If he sends them out against the enemy, they go and conquer mountains, walls, and towers. They kill and are killed and do not disobey the king's command. If they win the victory, they bring everything to the king, whatever spoil they take and everything else. Likewise, those who do not serve in the army or make war, but till the soil. When they sow, reap the harvest and bring some to the king. And they compel one another to pay taxes to the king. Yet he's only one man. But if he tells them to kill, they kill. If he tells them to release, they release. This gets a bit repetitive. Um, he didn't have much to say. Finally, he stops. So is not, not the king the strongest since he's to be obeyed in this fashion? The third, Zerubbabel, who had spoken of women in truth, began to speak. Gentlemen, is not the king great? I love that. He starts off by, king, great, great king. <laughs> and are not men many, and is not wine strong? So who's their master? Who's their lord? Isn't it women? Now, this would have been greeted with what in the crowd? Because in Babylon, women didn't have much of a standing. In God's economy, women always have. And so Zerubbabel is saying, you know who's even more powerful? Women. Women gave birth to the king. I'm assuming just one did, but I get the point. And to every people that rules over seas and land, from women they came. Women brought up the very men who plant the vineyards from which comes wine. Women make men's clothes. They bring men glory. Men cannot exist without women. If men gather gold and silver or any other beautiful thing, then see a woman, lovely in appearance and beauty, they let all those things go and gape at her with open mouths, stare at her, and all prefer her to gold or silver or any other beautiful thing. About this time, people in the crowd are going, hey, he's got a point. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty true. A man leaves his own father who brought him up in his own country and cleaves to his wife. With his wife, he ends his days. No thought of his father or his mother of his country. Hence, you must realize that women rule over you. Do you not labor and toil and bring everything and give it to women? A man takes his sword and goes out to travel and rob and steal, and I don't know where he got that, and to sail the seas and rivers. He faces light, uh, lions. He walks in darkness. And when he steals and robs and plunders, he brings it back to the woman he loves. Nothing says, I love you, more than stealing things. And... That's not in Esdras. It's a commentary. 
A man loves his wife more than his father and mother. Many men have lost their minds because of women and have become slaves because of them. Yes, that's true. Many, I, I can still remember the first time I picked my clothes off the floor, took them in, and put them in a hamper and realized, wait a minute, I didn't want to do that. Why am I doing this? And you look over and see your wife and go, oh, okay. Many have perished, stumbled, sinned because of women. And now do you not believe me? He goes on. I like this one. Is not the king great in his power? Once again, hey, king, king, great guy, that king. Do not all lands fear to touch him? Yet I've seen him with Apame. Ooh, the king's concubine. That's, um, that's your date. A prickly date, evidently. Concubine. The daughter, thank you for getting that. It's like an epistle is a letter from an apostle, you know, for a female apostle. Uh, the daughter of the illustrious Bardicus, she would sit at the king's right hand, take the crown from the king's head, put it on her own, and slap the king with her left hand. That's the unclean hand. At this, the king would gaze at her with mouth agape. If she smiles at him, he laughs, probably. <laughs> That's probably it. <laughs> if she loses her temper with him, he flatters her that she might be reconciled to him. Gentlemen, are women not strong since they do these things? He keeps going. I think he's won by this stage, don't you? At this point, um, you know, he goes, wine is unrighteous, the king is unrighteous, women are unrighteous, everything. But truth, and then he goes, truth endures and is strong forever and lives and prevails forever and ever. With her, he makes truth female. There is the same as Solomon did. There is no partiality or preference, but she does what is righteous instead of anything that is unrighteous. And he goes on, to her belongs the strength and kingship and power and majesty of all the ages. Blessed be the God of truth. He sees speaking and all the people shouted, greatest truth, strongest of all. And the king said, you got it. Ask what you wish. Even beyond what is written, we will give it to you for you have been found to be the wisest. You'll sit next to me and me, my kinsman. Zerubbabel said, remember the vow which you made to build Jerusalem in the day you became king? To send back all the furniture of the temple? Let us go. Then Darius the king rose, kissed him, wrote letters for him and all the treasurers and governors and generals and satraps. There they are again, in case you forgot them. That they should give escort to him and all who were going with him to build Jerusalem. Isn't that kind of a cool story? That's kind of neat to know. I'm sorry that people don't know First Esdras because that's pretty cool. Now, I've had people say, well, that's why it's not in the Bible. It's because it elevates women too much. Seriously, if that were true, then you'd have to take out the Jesus stories too. No, it, there was some politics going on at the time. And there are some historical inaccuracies in the book that they all understood. And therefore, they did not look upon it as equal to the other books. By the way, um, we also, right after that, he lists those who are allowed to go and why they're allowed to go. Now, why would he do all of that? Again, to permission to travel, but also so when they got there, they could hold that up to the people that were there and say, the king says this is ours. In some ways, it would be like people tracing themselves back to, we came over on the Mayflower, right? 
We're the originals. This is our land. I'll never forget it. When I was a boy, we, I don't even know where we were, but some of the women in the church wanted to, uh, my mother to join them in this social club thingy. And it was the DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They didn't get the irony. And, you know, Cammy, uh, I'm not Cammy, my mother comes home and she's talking to my father. And she's going, I don't think they understand we were on the other side. <laughs> my father said, don't bring it up. Uh, and, um, but she never did join them. But uh, the point that this is our lineage and our credentials. And by the way, the Jews still use this today to fight for their land where they are in Israel. And whenever the British um, launched the Zionist movement to reestablish the nation of Israel, they used First Esdras and the books of Chronicles mainly to prove that these lines of families own this land. And they kicked out the people that were there, the Palestinians, the people of Palestine. The battles continue. Um, it's all about establishing who has rights to the land, and that's what the argument is. Now, to further establish this, Esdras gives us the correspondence. He uses other material. Correspondence between Darius and the leaders, the governor of Syria, allowing them to rebuild the temple. And after the temple is rebuilt, there's the tears and the crying. We do not have the ending to First Esdras. It breaks off mid-sentence, and we cannot find another older, complete version. Um, which is sad. Christians, by the way, put it in the Apocrypha, state it for the very stated reason, lest these books perish from the face of the earth. And a couple of them are in danger of doing so. All right, last 10 minutes. Second Esdras, if you didn't get to it, you don't need to. It is depressing really is. And it's also completely made up. But it is a theological back and forth between Ezra and God. Uh, and again, Ezra did not write it. It shows up first about 150 AD. Um, it could have been written by somebody from the Ezra school. It might have been written by Ezra. We don't. Ezra was a rough guy. Read Ezra, then read Nehemiah, and you see one's really harsh, and the other's pretty nice. You get those. Or it might have been written by Zerubbabel. Uh, I'm sorry, the father of Zerubbabel, whose name is Salathiel. There's not a quiz later. There's a lot of stuff in my head that doesn't need to be there. This is one of them. It's the same kind of literature as the book of Revelation. It's apocalyptic. It's the same kind of literature as the, the last chapters of Daniel. Very arcane, apocalyptic literature. It consists of seven visions. Three come from questions Ezra asked about human suffering and God's justice. It is so pessimistic. It's like the preachers when I was a boy. When I was a boy, we were the only faithful church. Sorry if, if you missed that. And there weren't that many of us, but they still yelled at us every Sunday and told us that if Jesus came back right then, most of us would be lost. Anybody else be in one of those churches? You were too? Esca other escapees across the wire? Welcome home. Um, I guess I'll never forget people, the preachers will always yell, Jesus could come back before this sermon is done. And I'm thinking, yep. <laughs> Way to increase the odds. Yeah. I was never an easy kid to raise, evidently. Um, 
just I'm so glad I'm so easy to be married to. Um, very, it says, most Jews will be eternally damned. It says, God's not concerned about the fate of the lost. They have it coming. Our oldest copies of this book come in two different versions. One looks to have been modified by Christians to make it more, but when Jesus comes here, people will be saved, and then he'll like us uh, when the Messiah comes. So there are two different versions. Latin has two chapters. That's the Christian bit, and the Greek doesn't. Um, Probably added around 50 to 120 AD. It's hard to know. Anyway, and by the way, they even put in there the bet where when the Messiah comes, he'll try to gather the Jews like a hen gathers her. It, it, it kind of gets from the Gospels a couple of things and sticks them in there. So that said, it presents also Jesus as caring for those who confessed him on earth, placing crowns on her heads and scepters in her hands. And it helps to remember that the Bible didn't just drop out of heaven. It took a while to get this together. So, all right, can I do this quick? Ezra asked how the people of Israel can have such pain if God is just. Anybody else ask that question? I ask it all the time. God, how? I mean, this week has been a hard week. I've, I get people write me because I'm going around talking and I have done for 30 years and I've had five preachers who I know fired this week. And I've had, I don't know how many write me saying, my child was just diagnosed with leukemia. My daughter just ran off. And after, this week has been one of those weeks where I've looked up to God and I've said, you know, that's about all the pain I can handle. I'd really appreciate it if you would just turn the pain off for a while. So I get it. And if you don't get it, maybe you just have a more blessed life. And I'm not saying that, throwing that away. If God wants to bless you more than me, I'm happy for you. I really am. Yay. But for most of us, we have at least once asked God, why? Right? I will admit, I'm a little bit worse on that than others. I mean, my microwave can break. And I'll go, there is no God. You know, my faith is like the Rio Grande. It's a mile wide and an inch deep. God answers, well, humans just can't understand God. They can't understand God's justice. They won't until the end of, the, time, uh, of the, the current world. Well, Ezra comes back and says, well, why were we given up to the Babylonians? They're the bad guys. God once again says, you just can't understand it. Now, is that the kind of answer that satisfies you? It, but isn't that what we sometimes give our kids and each other? Well, just have faith. God has a plan. So in some ways, this is pretty interesting back and forth. So the third one, vision, he asked why Israel is God's people don't rule the world. Now, Christians, do you have an answer to that one? You ought to. Because our kingdom's not of this world. We don't rule. And it's a problem when Christians think if we vote the right person in, Jesus will be happy. Because I've never met a ruler who that was their first concern. You know, uh, let's be very careful about this. So, that said, God then doesn't even talk to him. He just sends Uriel, the archangel. Who? Well, (coughs) 
In the Bible, there's only one angel mentioned as archangel. What's the name? Not Gabriel. A lot of people think Gabriel. Michael. In fact, I've even had people say Michael was the archangel of the old and Gabriel of the new. I've often wondered, how did that work? You know, God call in Michael. Well, we've done a performance review. You know, uh, <laughs> no, only Michael is called an archangel. In the New Testament, Gabriel is just an angel. Those are the only named ones we have. Now, that's a little fudge because there are a couple of words that are used that could be names. Uh, but the Jews actually named quite a few. And Uriel was one of them, U-R-I-E-L. Well, Uriel is sent to answer his questions. And he says, the current world is in transition. Once the evil ones are punished, God will raise up his, children, his chosen people. At this time, Israel was still looking for a Messiah that would come and establish their kingdom like David. That's why they were so disappointed in Jesus. Because he wasn't interested. Um, and to this day, disappointed in Jesus. Ezra is pictured as trying to intercede for those that are lost. He's a good guy here. But God says, don't waste your, God says, don't waste your breath. Nothing can be done for them. Now, how different is that from the message of Jesus? Do you see why Christians, while they didn't want the second Ezra's to go away, did not look upon it as scripture? That doesn't sound like Jesus or God. In fact, in 2 Ezra's chapter 8, verse 61 through 62, I'm sure you memorized this, God says, I will rejoice over the few who shall be saved because it is they who have made my glory to prevail now and through them my name has now been honored and I will not grieve over the multitude of those who perish. Stop. Remember Jesus crying over Jerusalem? I will not grieve over the multitude of those who perish, for it is they who are now like a mist and are similar to a flame and smoke. They are set on fire and burn hotly and are extinguished. Also, in 2 Esdras, there are two other issues. One we've pretty much covered. God is unmoved by prayers. I would submit to you that in a lot of churches, we act as if that's still true. We, um, I don't know how many people think that God has planned everything in all detail till the end of time and nothing you can do to change it. Now pray. My response is, why? Can't do anything. Well, pray because he wants you to. Well, what does he want me to say? Well, that's a problem. Read in the Old Testament. What are they, what are, in the New Testament, what are they saying? Change this, do this, move that around. And God says, pray like that. So we can do that. We can do that. And I'll never forget if you're a Calvinist, I don't mean to be insulting. Just be aware your doctrine does go somewhere. You may not want to go there with it. Uh, a man came to our church in Colorado, and he had come for the express purpose of making sure I was confronted uh, because I was sinning not being a Calvinist. Calvinists, in the strictest terms, believe that everything is predestined by God. And so he was going at me, and I was saying, but in Jeremiah, God says he was surprised. And with Moses, he said, let's try this. If that doesn't work, let's try this. If that doesn't work, let's try this. Doesn't sound like he'd already sorted out what was going to work. And he just kept going. And after a while, I had to go out and teach a class. And so I finally looked at him and I said, brother, if you're right, then God predestined me to not agree with you. Who are we to fight against the will of God? 
it got real quiet in the room. All theology is a pony. If you don't want to go where that pony's going, don't hop on. By the way, that's not in the Bible. I just mean. But we find predestination taught in Second Esdras, that there's not a thing you can do. As I wrap this up, and I'll take a question or two if you, if you wish, but our time's almost up. One of the leaders of what would later be known as the American Restoration Movement or the Stone Campbell Movement, from, and that's where we come from, it was predestination that caused him to leave his church and hunt for Christianity. His name is Barton W. Stone. And he left Calvinism because he was asking, why pray? And you say, if you're going to be saved, God's already determined it. And if you're not, God's already determined it. So what's the point? And he left and became a founder of the larger section of the two that came together at Cane Ridge, Kentucky, that now we call the Churches of Christ and Christian Churches. Uh, so we have a tie-in.